Our scripture this morning comes from Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in, in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as that it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing, so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. God, we ask that you would continue to meet us and teach us in your word about what it means to live a forgiving life, um, a forgiven life, and to embody that as your community. So be with us this morning, in Christ's name. So for the past four weeks, um, we've been exploring forgiveness from really the perspective of our interpersonal relationships and our relationships uh, relationship with God, and for the remaining portion uh, in the next three weeks, which will bring us to, to Lent, I want to explore with you the social dimensions of forgiveness. So questions like, how do we embody forgiveness, not just as individuals, but as a whole community? Uh, how does a society or a community offer forgiveness to persons without compromising justice? Is forgiveness and reconciliation possible when wrongs have been committed, not just by individuals, but of whole groups of people against other groups of people? What would it look like for the church as a community to embody the forgiveness, uh, the virtue of forgiveness? And so today I want to just, the argument I want to make or just claim is this, is that the, to be the church is to be a community that embodies forgiveness in a world without forgiveness. That's what it means to be the church. It's to embody forgiveness in a world without forgiveness. This is the great missionary calling of the church, to model forgiveness in our own life with one another and towards others outside of the church, and to hold out forgiveness, God's forgiveness for the sake of the world. In the previous weeks, I, I've spent a lot of time talking about the virtues uh, of forgiveness, um, that the practice of forgiveness really depends upon us developing a lot of other virtues, things like humility, patience, gentleness, kindness, uh, mercy, compassion. These uh, virtues are kind of like, um, they're like strengthening exercises for our souls. If the act of forgiving another person is, is to, to try to move the soul or the heart after it's been really hurt, in a direction it doesn't want to go. You have to have these rehabilitative exercises 
to strengthen you to do that. That's been a lot of the focus of, of the first four weeks as we talk about. Now I want to, instead of thinking about the inner life of forgiveness and how we do it, I want us to shift our focus outward to consider how does forgiveness, the reality of forgiveness, become expressed in our lives as individuals and as, as a community to the world. And here in our verses today, Paul doesn't use the word forgiveness, but if you know the book of Romans, the whole book of Romans is really about justification, which is really about forgiveness. How, does, how can God forgive? How can God forgive sin? That's, that's really Paul's main thing. And so when he comes to this section here in chapter 12, he's really shifting his focus to say, well, well then what does forgiveness look like as it comes to expression in our life. And so Paul really, I mean, he sets forth here, I think, the, the ethics of forgiveness. He doesn't use that word, but it, it's the assumption. And what he does here is he, the first part especially of this chapter deals with, or this section, how we relate to one another as a community. And then the second portion of it kind of shifts to how we relate to the world, especially when we have enemies. So today I want to consider those, those ethics of forgiveness and I have four statements or truths about the ethics of forgiveness. The first one deals with our own life, internal life, and the, the last three as we look out into the world. The first one is this. Forgiveness is what it means to love in a broken and sinful world. Forgiveness is what it means to love in a broken and sinful world. That, Paul starts with, let love be genuine. Well, what does he mean? Right? Let it be real. Let it be authentic. Don't just give lip service to it. Don't fake it. Love is more than a feeling or a sensation. Love is a moral activity. And everything um, that really comes after these verses to the end of the chapter really, in, in a way, is an explanation and further um, working out of what that moral activity of loving is. All the things that Paul commands is, a way, is what it means to love. Well, it's interesting that he uses that, that word genuine love because love that is genuine is love that is in touch with the way the world really is. Love that is in touch with the way human beings really are. And it, the opposite of a genuine love is what I would call a sentimental love. Sentimental love is idealized love, right? It's, it's love that, that doesn't recognize that the world is broken, that people are sinful. It's, it's, it's a love that just assumes that, that a person is perfect or that the world should be perfect, that everything should be good. That should, and and that's, a, that's a sentimental love. But a genuine love, a genuine love is one that recognizes that there are no perfect people, there are only imperfect people. And that to love and to be loved is to love in a sinful and a broken world. Now, uh, in a very similar passage in 1 Peter, Peter says, um, this is chapter 4, verse 8, he says, above all, keep loving one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. It's like that, you got to keep loving, because there's a lot of sin out there that needs to get covered. Right? That's, that's his argument. You know, we love because there's a lot to be forgiven. And I love the word here, the picture, love covers a multitude of sins, right? It's, it's love is like a garment. It, it covers over our, our indecency towards one another. 
We throw it over one another. And think about, now why do we wear garments? You know, we, we, most of it, we wear garments because, uh, one, we want to stay warm. <laughs> uh, we want to look attractive. But one of the reasons we wear garments is because there are parts of our bodies that we don't want other people to see, right? If they were to see them and they were to be exposed, it would, it would be a, a source of great embarrassment and, and shame. And so we, we, we wear garments to cover over ourselves. And it's the same with forgiveness. Forgiveness functions like, like love functions like a garment that covers over um, the, the embarrassment and the shame of our sin. Now, I want to be really clear. There are times in which love, there are times in which love must first expose sin and wrongdoing and not just cover it up. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And yet, in, in, in so many of our relationships, when we sin against one another, when we wrong another, it doesn't require a trial. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't require a public reckoning. Sometimes we just cover it up. We cover it up with love. And I think what this means is that as a community, we have to have a kind of built-in forgiveness in place just to get along. Uh, Wendell Berry, the writer, um, in his new book, uh, The Need to Be Whole, he, he has this, this phrase he uses. He has a long section on forgiveness, social forgiveness. He talks about the need for what he calls prepaid forgiveness. We need prepaid forgiveness. Uh, he, he kind of imagines a scenario in his small town in Kentucky of Port Royal uh, where he says, most everybody voted for Trump. And he says that everybody comes in to the farm store and you know they voted for somebody and, you know, he imagines like a Biden voter and a Trump voter and how easy it would be for them to, to see one another as enemies. And he says this, if two neighbors know that they may seriously disagree but that either of them, given even a small change of circumstances, may desperately need the other, should they not keep between them a sort of prepaid forgiveness? They ought to keep it ready at hand like a fire extinguisher. Now, I love that image of forgiveness, prepaid forgiveness. It's like a, a fire extinguisher in the corner, and that when something breaks out, you grab it to put out that fire. Because the reality is, is that little fires in a community easily turn into big fires that will burn down a whole community, which is why we need forgiveness close at hand. Up to this point in this series, I've really focused on a very kind of personal aspect of thinking about forgiveness. And I've been at pains to try to help you make the movements in your own heart and soul for forgiving other people, because I know it's really hard to do. But I think there's a way that we can sort of lose our perspective about forgiveness and think that at the end of the day, my willingness or my refusal to forgive just impacts me and the other party. <clears throat> but that's not true. One of the, we forgive not just for this, my own sake, because it's good for me to forgive therapeutically, or for the sake of the other person. We need to be willing to forgive one another for the sake of the whole community. Friends, um, when we withhold forgiveness as members of a community, as members of a family together, our refusal to forgive doesn't just impact us and the other party, it affects the whole community. It impacts the whole community. Because community is like an ecosystem. Everything's interconnected relationally. And when one aspect of unhealth enters one part of the community over here, eventually, if it's not dealt with, it will spread through the community. It's like a contagion, right? We forgive 
not just for our own sake and the other person, we forgive for the sake of the whole community. You know, I think there's a lot of temptation when you come to church and when you really, maybe for the first time in your life, or you become really involved in a Christian community. And we tend to idealize, for good reasons, Christian community, right? Church, the Christian community, it's a place where I'll always be loved, I'll always be accepted, where, where people will like me, where I'll get along, where I won't get hurt. You know, we, we expect to get hurt in the world, right? In the workplace, even in our families. We expect to fight with our siblings, with our parents, but we don't in the church. And, and when it happens, we're shocked and sometimes dismayed about the church. But friends, this is a false picture of the church. This is, this is a false picture of the church. Sometimes I joke with you guys, and I say, I mean, if you've been hurt by somebody in the church, congratulations, you belong. Because if you've never been hurt by anybody in the church and you've been here for very long, it just probably means you don't know anybody, right? You're not really connected. The church is not morally superior to other communities in the world when it comes to this getting hurt and hurting other people. We're just not. I mean, the whole basis of belonging in the church is recognizing that you are a sinner. There's no way to actually belong unless you recognize that reality, right? But where the church should be better is forgiving and reconciling. That's where we have the resources that the world does not have. Forgiving and reconciling. Because the whole basis of this community is forgiveness. The only reason that you are here and can be here and belong is because of God's forgiveness. Not because you share a racial demographic or an educational demographic or you like a certain style of preaching or music or it's really close. Those are all secondary kinds of things. The only reason to belong is that you have been forgiven. Friends, forgiveness is what love looks like in a world that's sinful and broken. And as the church, we are called to embody this reality. So that's point number one. And that's the longest point. The other one's going to go quickly, so don't you worry. <laughs> the other night at our game night, I think it was Colin was sharing to me when he was in Guatemala, the pastor got up. He's like, I've got 12 points. <laughs> I think he ended it. He didn't get through all 12, but that was the goal two hours later. Um, this is the second point. Forgiveness has moral clarity about the difference between good and evil. Forgiveness has moral clarity about the difference between good and evil. Paul says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. What does it mean to abhor something? It is to hate it emotionally. That's, that's the language of, it is to find it disgusting, to find it repugnant, loathsome, detestable. And Paul says, you are to develop an emotional hatred of evil. Our response emotionally to evil, to abuse of all kinds, physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, to racism, oppression, murder, violence, theft, hypocrisy, falsehood, is to hate it emotionally, not to be intellectual and cool and moderate about it, but to hate it. And the reason we hate it, it's not that we just hate, it's that because we love the good. Right? Paul says, 
Hate what is evil, abhor what is evil, love what is good. When you love what is good, when you love life, when you love people, and you see that which threatens their very existence, which is evil, you can do nothing but hate it. (laughs) And for Paul, he wants us to cultivate this emotional relationship to loving the good and hating what is evil. See, it is a false forgiveness that seeks to minimize the real damage and harm that evil does in the world. That is not forgiveness. And a lot of times after mass shootings and, and horrific events like we had this past week with, in Memphis, you know, sometimes there's certain segments where it's like, we need to forgive, we need to forgive, we need to be willing. And many people are like, reject forgiveness outright because they're like, well, it sounds like you're just trying to say, let's not talk about the injustice. But that's not forgiveness, friends. There is no true forgiveness without, there's no forgiveness without the truth about what evil acts and being reckoned with. After the end of apartheid in South Africa, uh, Nelson Mandela, who had been in prison for, I think, 30 years, um, was elected the president of South Africa, and uh, he uh, saw the need for a broad public conversation to reckon with the legacy and the evils of the apartheid system. And he appointed uh, Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu to head up a commission which came to be known as the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee. And apartheid in South Africa was a national policy of racial segregation that had been in place for about 40 years. It came to an end in 1994, in which the minority white population of Afrikaners ruled and sort of set up a system which benefited them at all levels and uh, really kept the non-white population of South Africans in check. But when it finally ended in 1994, all of a sudden the white uh, Afrikaners were out of power and the non-white or um, South South African majority was in power. And there was a lot of fear. There was a lot of fear socially and anxiety that mass violence would be breaking out and reprisals and retaliation. And during the same time, just to the north in Rwanda in 1994, there was a civil war in which uh, there was a genocide of a million people. And Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu and others knew that what were they going to do if the same thing wasn't going to happen in South Africa? And so the Truth and Reconciliation Committee was, was started. And what it did is it invited witnesses who were identified as victims of apartheid and the gross human rights violation to give statements publicly, not all of the time publicly, but to record those. And it, I think it went on for about three years. And the perpetrators, even those who had uh, been part of the system of upholding apartheid, were given an opportunity to give testimony, to repent, and also to request amnesty from both civil and criminal um, prosecution. But the guiding principle of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee was this, is that truth must be told. We as South Africans, we have to tell the truth about what happens. We cannot paper it over. We cannot just give amnesty to our oppressors. We have to have a conversation. And yet the goal was reconciliation. The goal was not punishment and vengeance. And there's no doubt that the Truth and Reconciliation Committee played a really huge role in keeping South Africa from really descending into the the violence that many other African countries had experienced. And what's really beautiful about this story, too, is that the, the churches of South Africa, 
the black church especially, but also the white church, they, in many ways, were behind this movement. Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop, uh, Archbishop of, of the Anglican Church in South Africa, was the leader of this. And it's a, you can read about this in his book, No Future Without Forgiveness. But the point is this. Forgiveness has clarity about the difference between good and evil. Forgiveness has utter clarity about the difference between good and evil. There is no forgiveness without truth. Now, however, this brings us to the third, third statement here. Forgiveness embraces the moral complexity of life. Forgiveness embraces the moral complexity. Now, this might seem like a contradiction to what I just said, but it's not. Look at what Paul says here in verse 15 and through 18. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable and on the sight of all. And if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's a lot going on in these verses, but one thing that unites them is this sense of moral, I'll call it moral humility in our relationships with others. Moral humility. That, you know, don't, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think that you have all the answers, that you understand everything. I mean, Paul says, weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Sometimes people outside of our tribe or our group experience, they, they, they experience tragedy and suffering that we can't f- fully understand. And sometimes we just need to weep with them. And sometimes they experience good things, and we shouldn't be envious and hateful, but we should rejoice with them. You know, we shouldn't be, think so highly of ourselves, think of ourselves as morally superior that we're not willing to associate with people who we believe are below us, right? Usually, in our culture, it's going to be those who hold our different politics, right? That we're not, we're not too good to, to rub shoulders with people who voted differently or, or think differently. That, that we're not, that we don't, you know, we try as best as we can to live peaceably with one another, as much as is possible, recognizing that's not always possible. Forgiveness embraces the moral complexity of life. Cultivating the difference between what is good and what is evil does not mean that we can easily divide up the world into good and evil, into those people who are the good people and those people who are the evil people, those who are innocent, those who are victims, those who are oppressors, those who are persecutors. And you know, this is precisely how our politics work. And just across the board, right? It's a tribal politics. And we think in terms of these pure categories of victim, perpetrator, Republican, Democrat, good people, bad people, woke and anti-woke. Black lives matter, blue lives matter, right? But forgiveness embraces the moral complexity of life because it recognizes that we're all sinners. We're all sinners. All of us have good in us as well as evil. All of us are capable of, at the same time, becoming victims of injustice and also perpetrators of it. Um, one of the quotes in the worship folder comes from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who a Russian who during World War II uh, wrote a letter in which he had made a critical comment about Stalin's leadership. And uh, he was subsequently uh, imprisoned in Siberia for 20 years. And 
he, in his memoir of that time, uh, comes to this realization that I think captures this truth. He said, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor through classes or political parties, but right through every human heart. And through all human hearts, the line shifts inside of us. It oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small brighead of good is retained. And even upon the best of hearts, there remains unuprooted small corner of evil. See, the difference between good and evil is as stark as the difference between night and day. But when the line between good and evil is drawn through the human heart, it becomes very difficult for us to break the world up and assign easily blame that these are the innocent, these are the guilty, these are the good people, these are the bad people. This is what I mean about embracing the moral complexity within life and in our conflicts. And remember the major premise of this whole series about forgiveness. It's, I've been calling it the, the Bible's forgiveness equation. God forgave us, so we should forgive one another. God forgave us, so we should forgive one another. And the assumption, if God forgave us, that means that we are sinners. The assumption is that we are sinners. Even when we are victims of injustice, by no fault of our own, that doesn't give us the permission to make ourselves pure and innocent. Just because we've been wronged by others does not make us better than them or above them. Because the reality is this, is that we don't reckon with that reality. When we feel victimized, when we feel like we've been done wrong, and we see ourselves as innocent and pure, we become self-righteous, and then we see ourselves as superior to the other, and then it's easy from there to make a few steps to see our violence and reaction to them as justified for what they did for us. Miroslav Volf says that forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Let that sit with you for a minute. Forgiveness flounders because I exclude my enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So I want to demonize my enemy. I want to dehumanize them. I don't want them to have any agency or anything good about them. And I want to see myself as pure, as righteous. But again, forgiveness teaches us that we have to embrace the moral complexity of life. And then finally, forgiveness, this is the final statement, forgiveness lets lets go of vengeance, the desire for vengeance and leaves it to the Lord. Forgiveness lets go of our desire for vengeance and leaves it to the Lord. It is instinctual for us, especially when great evil or harm has been done against us to seek justice through punishment or vengeance. But here's the thing. Vengeance does not equal justice. Justice does not equal vengeance. These are not equivalent. Uh, Paul will, in the next chapter, talk about government and that government has an ordained purpose for upholding justice and even punishing those those evildoers. That's another conversation. But when it comes to our relationships, both as individuals and as social groups, we should not seek revenge, right? Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the Lord, the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And for by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, the reality is this. When we seek to punish, when we seek vengeance for wrongs done against us, it does not stop the conflict. It always, 100% of the time, escalates conflict. It always escalates conflict. It never stops it. Unless, of course, the goal is to completely destroy your enemy such that there's no enemy left. And then the conflict stops, but at the cost of your enemy. The reality is that violence always begets more violence. Hate always begets more hate. I mean, you see there's a cycle here, right? (laughs) When we are struck by others and feel injured and we want to strike back, And then they feel hurt by us, and then they strike back, and then we strike back, and then we don't even remember what the original conflict was, right? This is the world we live in, right? Is it not? I mean, we are surrounded constantly by violence, and it's so normal for us that we're a nerd to it. I mean, there are people that die almost every single day in the city of Milwaukee because of violence and gun violence. We have mass shootings, you know, every other month or more, and we get upset and angry, you know, we, we have police brutality. We're just surrounded by violence. And oftentimes our only, our only response, and this is what we saw and what happened in Memphis, is like, well, if we're going to deal with the violence of the city, we've got to bring a, a more morally superior form of violence over against it. Right? We answer violence with more violence. This is, this is the legacy of Cain. This is why I, I wanted that whole chapter to be read. Cain committed an act of violence against his own brother, and that act of violence continues to ripple through all of creation to this day. And it's interesting, when God confronts Cain for the murder of his brother, God doesn't then kill Cain. He doesn't give him capital punishment. He exiles him. And then when Cain complains and worries that he'll be killed, and he says, nobody should kill Cain. He protects Cain from death. And so Cain goes into exile, but he never deals with the hate in his heart towards God and towards his brother. And what he does is he founds a city. He names after his son Enoch. And so Cain finds a city, and this city is founded upon violence. And you see this in that poem by Lamech, one of his great-great-grandchildren. And Lamech is speaking to his wives, right? Here you have bigamy already. And he says, hear my voice, wives of Lamech, listen to what I have to say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Lamech's is (laughs) 77-fold. Right? What began with Cain with a single murder, which spilled blood on creation now, finds expression, has come to bloom in this city in which one man will kill another one for a slight We continue to live in the world of violence that Cain started. And oftentimes we, we just go along, we participate in it. The question is, how do we stop, right? How do we stop doing this? How do we stop being part of the, the cycle? The only way to stop the violence and stop the hatred is for us to embody the forgiveness of God in the world. That's the only way it stops. Friends, we are never more like God than we are forgiving one another. Never. That means we don't seek vengeance and punishment. 
when we're wrong. That's not, that's not the same to say we don't seek justice. Don't equate vengeance and justice. They don't necessarily go together. It means that we don't return insult for insult, return blow for blow. We, we refuse to participate in the cycle of hate and the rhetoric of hate, of demonizing our enemies, ideologically speaking, right? The church is called to be emissaries of forgiveness, ambassadors of reconciliation. We're, not, we're called to be peacemakers, not partisans. This is what we see in post-apartheid South Africa in the church. And this is actually what we saw also in the civil rights movement in the 1960s with the leadership of Martin Luther King, that that is a Christian movement, right? And the, the, the bedrock foundation of, of Dr. King's movement was nonviolence. It was the ethics of forgiveness. We are called to resist evil and injustice of every kind. We're not called to take up ideological arms. We're not called to pour gasoline on the culture wars. We're called to love our enemies, just as Jesus loved his enemy. And Jesus' enemy was you and me. <laughs> See, the, the presupposition of loving our enemies is that we have been loved as an enemy. And that God, in the harms and the evils that we did, instead of redirecting it back at us, what did he do is he absorbed it. He absorbed it into his own life on the cross. He's, he's just receiving all the evil and harms and injustice. And he's not redirecting it back out. He's swallowing it up in his own life. When we see the nature of God's forgiveness in our lives, we come to realize that the ultimate burden for loving our enemy doesn't fall on us. The ultimate burden for achieving justice and just recompense does not fall on us. It falls on God. It falls on Jesus. Our enemies, your enemies may hurt you, but they cannot ruin you. They cannot crucify you. They cannot send you to hell as they did Jesus. You will never face an enemy that Jesus did not already face and defeat. You will never face an enemy that will cause you ultimate harm. Because when our lives are in Jesus Christ, as Paul says later, we are more than conquerors. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that you would teach us forgiveness. Help us to know that you have forgiven us and uh, strengthen us and give us a vision as a community for what it means to embody your forgiveness in the world even in the face of great injustice and evil and harm. Help us to resist evil and overcome evil, not with evil, but with good, with the good of forgiveness, with the good of your grace and your mercy. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen.